Okay, hello everybody. Today is Monday, another Zodiac Monday. Welcome to the show. Just a couple of quick announcements and reminders before we begin. The first is that this show is available for free downloads at Launchpad 1. That's a download for the audio version as a pure podcast. You can get that in the description box. And you can always support the show at buymeacoffee.com. There's a link for that one too posted down below, and all supporters will get a shout-out here on Zodiac Mondays. Maybe you have seen the meme out there that Ted Cruz was the Zodiac killer, and in fact there are many places on the internet, including even here on Black Box Online Radio, that talk about how Ted Cruz might just possibly be the worst Zodiac killer suspect ever. But today, I will try to present an even worse suspect for you. Why not begin the show this way? I think it's good. So, firstly, the Zodiac was a serial killer who operated in California in 1968-69, and anything that happened before or after that is simply a mystery. Some people think there were pre-Zodiac crimes, and some people think that there were post-Zodiac crimes. And then, of course, the Zodiac is also mailing in letters and cryptograms. Some have been authenticated and some have not. Who could be a worse Zodiac Killer suspect than Ted Cruz? I will propose to you a guy named Steven Seagal. You ever heard of him? Yes, that's right, Steven Seagal from the movies. Because I was just trying to make a list of Steven Seagal movies that I actually wanted to watch for some reason. I don't know why I would do that. But I happened to get over onto his Wikipedia, and I saw that he was in California in... 1970 and 71, and at some point he leaves California and goes to Japan for 1972 and 73, then returns to America in 1974, and I thought, oh dear, oh lord, oh my goodness, some of you are thinking about it already. That is the two-year halt in Zodiac activity. As I said, the Zodiac operated in 1969, and then after the murder of Paul Stein on October 11th of that year, the Zodiac says that he is not going to announce his crimes the same way that he has done with the previous four attacks, and he's just going to try and pass them off as routine robberies or other similar crimes. But the Zodiac was writing letters and making threats. He threatened to detonate a bomb. And he also gave some vague allusions to other crimes, such as the attempted abduction of Kathleen Johns, as well as the disappearance of Donna Lass. The Kathleen Johns case actually has a more solid uh, claim to it. The Donna Lass claim is very vague. But people will often refer to this just simply as the two-year halt in Zodiac activity, which really means the years of 1972 and 73. The Zodiac would then resurface in... 1974 with the Exorcist letter, mailed in January of that year, and some other possible communications that might not be authentic. An example of one would be the Count Marco letter that ends with the person signing off as the Red Phantom, Red with Rage. But the real reason why I wanted to talk to you about this is, firstly, Steven Seagal might actually be a better suspect for the Zodiac crimes than Ted Cruz, mostly because he was actually born at the time. Ted Cruz was born in 1970, after the entirety of the confirmed Zodiac activities had ceased. And, I mean, it's obviously not meant to be taken seriously. Steven Seagal was actually born in 1952, and that would have placed him at about 17 years old. 
1969, and if other people are allowed to propose 17-year-old suspects, you give it um, its uh, day in court, so to speak, and that would be today, and I'll just flat out say that no, Steven Seagal was not the Zodiac Killer, but we gave him a chance. And I, I do think that this is there's something of real importance here, and that is just because somebody can say that their suspect was out of the country for 1972 and 73, that does not mean that they had any involvement with the Zodiac Killer mystery. And you will see this time and time again, and I even bought into it once. There was a guy named Randy Kenny out there that proposed a suspect named Louis Myers, who was just about the same age as Steven Seagal. He would have been 17 years old at the time of the Zodiac crimes. And one of his biggest pieces of evidence was that the reason why there was this two-year halt in Zodiac activity in the early 1970s was because Louis Myers was out of the country, stationed in Germany in the military. And I've talked a lot about Randy Kenny in some other episodes of Black Box All Mind Radio. I even did one of the more updated ones last year. You can find that on this channel called Zodiac Killer Randy Kenny Theory. And there are even some bonus uh, discussions that have been included into that episode. And the um, the thumbnail for that one actually features the Artesia Jane Doe, a different true crime case together, which I just wanted to bring some publicity to. So I invite you to check out any of the material here on Black Box Online Radio, and as always, you can like and subscribe. But most importantly, just because somebody can show an explanation for the halt in Zodiac activity, that does not make them the killer. And this is very important, because it's not just Randy Kenny. Other theorists will say this all the time. Oh, well, he went into the service, and then when he came out, the um, crime started again. And um, another example of this would be Anne Penn, who is the author of Golden State Killer Zodiac Solve, Why Not, What If, excuse me, well, not Why Not. I mean, that's probably the truth and heart and soul of the issue. Hey, why not say this suspect or that suspect? But it's called What If, and her other book is called Serial Slaughter. But that she also uses that particular explanation about her suspect goes into the military for a while, then he gets out, and then Zodiac crime starts surfacing again. It is insufficient. Because if you go back to 2017 and you find one of the oldest black box recordings that I ever did, you will hear me say something that I stand by to this day, and that is, I don't want to hear about what someone did not do. And I just think that the conclusion of this little segment here about Steven Seagal as a Zodiac killer suspect is that lots of people are going to be moving around. And this person isn't in the Bay Area for two years. And with, with Seagal, I mean, it's a, um, a Los Angeles, I think, actually. But this person isn't in California for two years. That is insufficient evidence. And this is how people will try and connect a bunch of patterns together and bring about this type of thinking that, okay, they weren't here in the country for two years, therefore they have to have committed this particular set of crimes. And you can find countless people who are probably out of the country. And also you can find um, several other suspects who were 17 years old at the time. It really is so shocking to me, and I never get over this. Some suspects in the Zodiac mystery are around 16 or 17 years old, and then some suspects are around... 59 or 60 or 61 years old. Examples of them would be people such as George Hill Hodel, 
a suspect in his 60s at the time, although he may have looked a, a little bit younger. Another example of a 17-year-old suspect would be George Senda, whom I talked about earlier this year. He was one of the subjects of the very first Zodiac Killer news report, and you find age ranges all up and down. People in their teens, 20s, 30s, all the way up until their 60s. So I've also come to the either conclusion or close to a conclusion that some people are simply saying that this is an unsolved case, so I'm just going to say whatever I want, and it's the general public's responsibility to prove me wrong. And I do not think that that is the most practical way of going about this. But at this time, I would also like to remind you guys that I work with the YouTube channel Astrocyte 400 that you heard about in the intro. And to those of you who are listening to the Zodiac Killer News Report as it's coming out live, I want to give you an update on that channel. There will be a very special bonus episode of Astrocyte 400 coming out on Thursday. This is Zodiac Monday, and there will be um, an extended episode coming out over on that channel. You can always like and subscribe and support the shows at buymeacoffee.com for both Black Box Online Radio and Astro Psych 400, and thank you to everyone who does so. Now, I was asked a particular question for the next segment, and somebody asked me, have I ever encountered the Zodiac Killer suspect Kurt Saxon? And my answer was no, I had not. I had never even heard of the guy, and I wanted to use this as an opportunity to look at a new suspect whom I've never discussed before on the channel. Kurt Saxon, to give the absolute most basic introduction, was born Donald Eugene Sisko on March 6th of 1932. He is an American writer, radio host, a survivalist, and author of The Poor Man's James Bond, a series of books on improvised weapons. So, you might be noticing that if we're talking about ages 1932, that would place him at about 37 years old in 1969. And, I mean, to start off, I think that that is somewhat of a reasonable age for the Zodiac Killer. I said in the past that I thought that the Zodiac was closer to the younger side because there's a lot of deviant behavior that goes on with individuals between the ages of 16 to 25, and I didn't completely understand all of the justifications that people had for pushing these 17-year-old suspects. But I um, was thinking that that I needed to step away from that, and that the Zodiac is not somebody in his early 20s. But for several reasons, I began to think the Zodiac is probably somebody in his early 30s to early 40s. And Kurt Saxon would fit that particular mold. And when I said he is an author and radio host, he is currently alive, so I want to be very clear. I am not accusing him of any of these crimes, just simply discussing a question that somebody asked me. And to continue on with his basic introduction, during the 1960s, Saxon drifted into and out of several political organizations and religious movements, including the American Nazi Party, the John Birch Society, the Minutemen, and the Church of Scientology. In August of 1970, he appeared before Senate Investigation Subcommittee, holding hearings on bombings and terrorism. According to newspaper accounts, he suggested police and concerned citizens use bombs to wipe out people and recommended that the student demonstrators be machine-gunned in the streets. 
By the early 1970s, he had come to reject the political and religious groups of the 1960s and began writing on homesteading and preparedness issues. He claims to have coined the term survivalism to refer to making preparations for a future collapse of society and or major disaster. Immediately, I know that the Unabomber case has been solved and it was Ted Kaczynski, but if... They hadn't found the Unabomber. I would say it's probably this guy. But no, of course not. Ted Kaczynski was indeed the Unabomber. There are two immediate responses to this piece of text, though. And that is that, firstly, Kurt Saxon had a connection to the organization The Minutemen. Or some people don't even call that an organization. They just say that it's a movement. And he's not the only Zodiac Killer suspect to belong to one. On one of the recent Zodiac Killer News reports, I was talking about Troy Houghton, a suspect whom you guys recommended I discuss, and I have to take a very strong stance with this. I am not the biggest fan of any of these theories that involve connecting the Zodiac Killer to an actual movement, political organization, and especially not a militia, or even organized crime. I know that it might sound a little bit dismissive, but based on the content of the Zodiac letters, I think that the Zodiac is just all about himself. And it's not simply that I think that. Even Don Hardin, the person who was involved with solving the 408 cipher, said that this guy is so full of himself, the first letter of the 408 cipher is probably I, and it was. I like killing people because it's so much fun. That hunch turned out to be correct because I don't necessarily see a lot of immediate connections in the language. It's all about things such as, when I die, I will be reborn in paradise, and those whom I have killed will be my slaves. And it doesn't necessarily suggest that this person is doing anything other than fueling his own ego. Even in the first Zodiac Killer letter, that was written in the summer of 1969, this person simply wants to talk about how he committed the crimes, he's taking credit for it, and he's stating facts that only he and the police know. And in the Troy Houghton theory, they, there's a reason for that. They say he's trying to create some type of distraction. But I think that at face value, that suggests that this is someone who is antisocial, not part of any organization like a militia or some type of movement, of similar nature, but rather an antisocial person who is somewhat rejected from society as opposed to being try trying to blend into a counter-movement. But I will give credit to people who um, address this type of Zodiac Killer Minutemen connection. They say that the Zodiac symbol, the circle with the cross going through it, could have been directly taken from a symbol that was used by the Minutemen. So, I mean, we have to give credit where credit is due. And my immediate response to learning about um, Kurt Saxon as a Zodiac suspect was, I just got over on his Wikipedia, and I had no idea who this guy was, and I was pulling up info about him, and I found that he was a very prolific writer. As, as they said, he wrote the uh, series The Poor Man's James Bond, which I haven't heard about, but I look forward to reading in the near future. But he just has countless publications going all the way up until the 19... 90s, and um, actually even into the 2000s, I take that back, it looks like one of his uh, final um, books came out in the early 2000s, but all of these began in 1971, the Militant's Formulary, 
was a book that he actually published under his name, Don Sisko. Uh, as we said, his name was Donald Eugene Sisko. He wasn't using the uh, gnome de plume. But 1971, after the period of Zodiac activity, or the um, Zodiac's true braggadocious periods of activity when he's trying to announce his name to the world, and he's trying to get the general public to recognize him, begging the people of San Francisco to wear Zodiac buttons. And again, that makes a little bit of sense to me that this is some type of disgruntled, failed, rejected writer who really just wants publication and recognition, but it's not until 1971 that he is actually able to achieve that. So, but then how would you deal with the resurgence of Zodiac activity in the nineteen um, mid-1970s, like 1974? But um, he wrote several books um, in that poor man's James Bond series, as well as updated volumes. But there was also something that caught my attention. He had another series of books that is not discussed very frequently in material around him, but it's called the Like Granddad Used to Make series. And um, he has all types of subjects that are included in there. Fireworks and explosives like Granddad Used to Make. Granddad's Wonderful Book of chemistry, bar drinks and booze like Granddad used to make, liquors and soda fountain drinks like Granddad used to make, medicines like Granddad used to make, and um, he has books out and publications out on all types of subjects, classic ghosts and vampires, street fighting, America's martial art, he has a book out on electricity, and um, as I said, uh, multiple books in the uh, Poor Man's James Bond series, Granddad's Wonderful Book of Magic, which actually came out in 2003. That was the one I was referring to. And he even had a book out on a motorcycle club called Wheels of Rage, the story of the Iron Cross Motorcycle Club, keeping score on modern prophets, the instant who's who in the Bible. He um, seemed like somebody who is simply just exploring ideas, writing about them, and he his mind seemed like it's exploring very, very different avenues and directions. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But I think that um, that kind of could be going either way, because all I'm saying about this guy is that he is a writer, which is much more important to me, is the time frame about that 1971. That really stood out. However, the person who did ask me the question say that did say that he might have been over six feet tall, which would not necessarily match up with a lot of the Zodiac killer descriptions. I was trying to find his exact height online, and I could not, but if he were, about, if he were over six feet tall, that does provide a little bit of room for doubt, because at the second Zodiac crime scene, or the second Zodiac attack, the Blue Rock Springs shooting on July 4th of 1969, the surviving victim, Mike Majot, was able to say that he estimated that the Zodiac could have been around 5 feet 8 inches tall and weighing maybe 195 or 200 pounds, beefy but not overly fat, and that wouldn't be anywhere near someone who is 6 foot 1 or 6 foot 2, or even 6 foot 3 like the suspect George Senda, whom I mentioned earlier. Then those people like George Sender or Ross Sullivan, who was six foot two, are almost certainly um at the bottom of the totem pole when it comes to likelihood of having any involvement with the Zodiac Killer mystery, because they just simply don't match the witness descriptions. Even at the next crime scene, the Lake Berryessa stabbing, which occurred on September twenty seventh of nineteen sixty nine, the highest height estimate 
that I think came at that time from Cecilia Shepherd, who did pass away from her injuries at the Lake Berryessa stabbing, but she was able to say and estimate that the perpetrator was around six feet tall. So that's why I mostly only entertain suspects who were five foot eight to six feet tall, and I really think that the killer would be in that particular range. And um, it's something that we can definitely use to um, explore physicalities and physical um, features of these people. I couldn't just leave it at that. I had to read up a little bit more about this guy. And I found a post that had been written out by V.T. Squire who says that there was a notable life event in the story of Kurt Saxon. And I'll just read the post uh, right here. Negligent, negligent, excuse me, it's sometimes too many G's in that word. Negligent discharge while manufacturing explosives disfigured his left hand. Lower joint amputations were necessary. This resulted in additional cuts to his right hand sometime prior to August 27th of 1969, from what I can tell. Additionally, Kurt said that this accident left him legally blind for several months. Well, doesn't that put an end to it? As I said, the Zodiac's operating July 4th of 69, September 27th of 69, and October 11th of 69, but let's keep going, though, because there's more. Additionally, Kurt said that this accident left him legally blind for several months. However, the available details surrounding this do not quite add up. Kurt explicitly state, dates his accident occurring on September 29th of 1969, not uh, August 27th. His testimony in 1970 gives the story of being monitored by federal agents when Governor Reagan was in town, whereas Mike Valgard Murray says that President Nixon was in town. Nixon and Reagan both visited Eureka, California on August 27th of 1969. Mike's account details that, there, that he was there in 1969 to purchase a silk screening business and rifle from Kurt, who lost interest due to having experienced an accident which crippled his left hand. In other words, this conflicts with the date that Kurt gives. Mike Murray then goes on to say that both he and Kurt were escorted by federal agents to go watch a movie while the president was in town. While a movie theater was only six blocks away from Kurt's home, the film, Mike Valgard Murray cites to appears to have not been released until December, and likely did not receive a wide release well into 1970. All I can really tell is that Kurt's accident is likely to have occurred sometime in 1968 or 1969, not later than August of 1969. And, you know, it could have... I mean, if you're going to actually try and weigh the merit of the idea and try to find some type of justification... If he's blind for several months, I mean, what if it happened almost at the beginning of August, like August 1st, and he didn't recover his sight until September 25th of 1969? And that's why there is more or less a two-month gap from July 4th of 1969 to the um, Lake Berryessa stabbing, which occurred on September 27th of 1969, and it doesn't even have to be August 1st. Why not August 5th? Because the Zodiac mails in multiple letters. The one that has the 408 cipher, and like, as I said, the one that announces his uh, debut to the world, and um, there's the one that happens on August 4th, where he is um, saying that he this is the Zodiac speaking. And so that shows that 
I mean, just maybe some way, somehow that could work. The part about having a disfigured hand, I think, is really quite difficult to push and really quite difficult to accept because if this guy were in some type of very, very brutalizing accident to the point where he has lost his sight and he has a disfigured and crippled hand, where is that in any of the witness descriptions? I mean, it provides somewhat of an explanation about why the killer would wear the Lake Berryessa costume, because he's trying to hide some type of particular mark on his face. Maybe he still had some signs of the accident. Although, if you're, if you're legally blind, wearing that Lake Berryessa hood with clip-on sunglasses is probably not going to do you any particular favors, and that creates a lot of room for doubt. I'm really surprised that this post went in that direction. I thought that the post was going to take the stance that, okay, the um, accident must have occurred after Zodiac activity in December of 69, as opposed to August, but I think that that pushes Kurt Saxon a little bit lower on the totem pole, and so my assessment, though, of belonging to a political organization, that could be completely wrong. I want to be very clear. That's just my personal take on the subject, but I do think that this um, accident that he experienced might even be somewhat of a disqualifying factor if he actually experienced these injuries in August of 1969, then he is on, not going to be 100% eliminated because we don't know the exact day and his exact condition, but it creates a lot of room for doubt. Okay, though, in the next segment, though, I would like to talk about the book profiled by Mark Hewitt. In the recent Zodiac Killer news reports, I've been going through his material step by step, and I talked about his analysis of the Lake Herman Road murders, the Blue Rock Springs shooting, and the Lake Berryessa stabbing, so it is only appropriate that I discuss the part about the Paul Stein murder, which took place on October 11th of 1969, the final confirmed Zodiac incident. And the first point that Mark Hewitt addresses in the book is, when people think of a serial killer who is planning very meticulously, they're going to think of something like the Lake Berryessa stabbing, which happened two weeks before this, where the Zodiac is wearing the hooded costume, as I said, with the clip-on sunglasses, and it has the fabric that hangs down with the circle and then the cross going through it that had been sewn on, and the, the killer brought pre-cut lengths of rope, the killer brought a knife, a handgun, is wearing gloves. That's what people would think of when they imagine a meticulously planned crime. But the Paul Stein murder could have been equally meticulously planned, just in different ways. This is all from the book Profiled, mind you. And the examples that Mark Hewitt cites would be that the Zodiac could have spent a very large amount of time scouting out the area in Presidio Heights where Paul Stein was murdered because he had a lower chance of being seen or recognized. And one um, one way, one point that is not mentioned by Hewitt, but by Mike Rodelli in The Hunt for Zodiac, is that the street where Paul Stein was murdered had lots of trees that blocked the street lamps, so there's even going to be more darkness than there should have been. And then the Zodiac could have also had a car stashed nearby, and they could have used that particular vehicle as a getaway car. That is mentioned in the book Profiled, but if I recall, I remember reading that in Robert Graysmith's Zodiac Unmasked. Of course, uh, Graysmith was talking about Arthur Lee Allen, and 
Grisma simply said that that's what he thought the Zodiac did, was go, going to a vehicle that had been stashed nearby. And there's even talk about how the Zodiac may have been wearing rust-colored pants on the night of the Stein murder. So if blood had dripped onto his pants, then it wouldn't have been immediately noticeable in the dark. And another point that um, Mark Hewitt brings up is that the Zodiac killer stole Paul Stein's keys, his wallet, and a piece of Paul Stein's bloody shirt. But firstly, the piece of the bloody shirt was stolen in a way that would not have been extremely noticeable. And by taking the keys on the wallet, though, it was a taxicab robbery. There's a lot of talk about how the Stein murder was just meant to be staged like a taxicab robbery. No, it was a real taxicab robbery. The Zodiac stole his wallet and his keys. And Mark Hewitt brings up the point that by doing so, that confuses the authorities for just a little bit, because they would not necessarily think that that was a Zodiac crime. While the Zodiac had announced his name to the world and committed multiple crimes, they were all at lovers' lanes. Lake Herman Road, Blue Rock Springs, and Lake Berryessa. A man and a woman were present. They were nearby vehicles, and they were more or less in secluded areas by themselves. With the Stein murder, Paul Stein was killed in Presidio Heights, not at a lover's lane, there's no woman present, and he's seen by multiple eyewitnesses that night. So, Mark Hewitt uh, provided um, an interesting explanation for that, that a lot of people are going to jump to the conclusion that the Zodiac was someone who was alienated or someone who was fueled by heterosexual animosity, and that's why he targeted heterosexual couples, like a man and a woman are together in the first three crimes. But, the counterbalance to that, again, Mark Hewitt's idea shared in the book, is that the Zodiac might have simply been going to lover's lanes because those people were in vulnerable places. The Zodiac might have been doing that just because that's where he had access to his victims, and the primary objective of the Zodiac killer was to kill people. But you might have heard something about this at some point where someone will say, that the Zodiac Killer hunted people for sport. In the first episode of America's Most Wanted that I watched that talked about the Zodiac Killer, my absolute first exposure to the Zodiac, John Walsh said that exact line, he terrorized the San Francisco Bay Area and hunted people for sport. No, the Zodiac did not. This is my own observation now. The Zodiac did not hunt people for sport. He blindsided people who were defenseless and didn't have the ability to fight back. You call that hunting people for sport? No, the Zodiac snuck up on people and fired some gunshots and ran away. The Zodiac would have stabbed people who were tied up and couldn't even wiggle their toes free or something like that. Absolutely, he didn't actually hunt people for sport. Maybe he thought so in his particular mind. But I don't, um, I think the Zodiac is a weakling, more or less. But as I said, there is the witness description of the Zodiac being 5 feet 8 inches tall at um, Blue Rock Springs. And as I understand, the Robbins kids all, who witnessed the Zodiac and provided the information that became the composite sketches also stated that the perpetrator was around 5 foot 8 and because I talk to you guys a lot about the Zodiac Killer, I was out walking home one night, and I saw a guy across the street walking toward me, and he's from quite a substantial distance away, 
and I began to think, hmm, how tall would he be? And I am five foot eight. So I thought he was the same height as I was, five feet eight inches tall. But the closer that I got to him, the taller he appeared. And it turned out that he was definitely taller than I was. He might have been about five foot eleven or six feet tall. So is it possible that some guy who was being shot at like Mike Michaud or the Robbins kids who were looking at the Zodiac out a window and from a distance didn't correctly gauge the height of a person because if it's from a distance, people might appear shorter than they actually are from far away. And the Zodiac could have been 5'10", 5'11", or 6 feet tall. Because, but Lake Berryessa is quite hard to dispute because Brian Hartnell and Cecilia Shepard had somewhat of an extended conversation with the Zodiac killer. But as far as this notion about how you cannot read too much into the activities of the Stein murder, suggesting that the killer of Paul Stein was not someone who was fueled by heterosexual animosity and alienation, Mark Hewitt does discuss that in the book Profiled, but he most likely will recant some of that because, as we now know, in his next book, Exposed, Mark Hewitt becomes a supporter of the Zodiac-Unabomber connection, the idea that Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber, and the Zodiac are one and the same. And Mark Hewitt was the first person to tell me the story of uh, Dr. Henry Murray and the experiments that Ted Kaczynski experienced when he was at Harvard. And they even said at least maybe not Henry Murray, but somebody said that Ted Kaczynski was the most alienated student at Harvard. And all I'm seeing from Ted Kaczynski is an extreme case of someone who was intelligent, but also rejected from society or didn't learn how to interact with people and become somewhat of a sociable human being. Absolutely, he did not become a sociable human being. I mean, he left his career as a mathematics professor and went off to live in Lincoln, Montana, in the Unabomber cabin, writing the Unabomber Manifesto, and he sent bombs through the mail that killed people, and also disfigured uh, people. So, um, he was really just someone who was mostly a social reject for a lot of different reasons. Some of it might have been natural, and others, other components could have been created from society, and perhaps I'll have to do somewhat of a bigger episode on the Unabomber in the near future, maybe even not even about the Zodiac Unabomber connection directly, but maybe responding to one of the uh, newer films such as Ted K made about the Unabomber. But once again, that um, is the stuff I've been mentioning is from the book Profiled by Mark Hewitt, part of the Zodiac Serial Killer Trilogy, Hunted, Profiled, and Exposed. So, um, I would like to go on to something that is a little bit different because, as I said, I always read multiple books at the same time, and I've been going through the book Lunches with Mr. Q, which is about a Zodiac killer suspect named Shel Cavale, even though it's not discussing the Zodiac. It's one of the few times when I've read a book about a Zodiac suspect that is just talking about what else he did in his ordinary life. I mean, yeah, there are lots of books out there about Ted Kaczynski, but they're talking about his criminal actions, like the Unabomber crimes, or the uh, reasons why he went on to become the Unabomber. Lunches with Mr. Q talks about the reasons why Shulka Valle went on to become a businessman. And one of the um, points that is um, firstly addressed is, it says in the book that his name is not even pronounced Cavale, it's pronounced 
Kowali, but um, I don't know if I should do that because I'm just so hooked on calling him Shel Kavale, and he did say very frequently that he gets mistaken for being Mr. Quail, and many people just call him Mr. Quail, but I also have a Kindle Fire, and I can set it on text-to-speech, and it calls him Mr. Quail when it says Q-V-A-L-E, and um, I'm still kind of hooked on saying Shel Kavale, but here is something very real. This is very important. I'm just reading the book Lunches with Mr. Q, and Shel Kavale shares one of his business secrets. He said, never, ever give somebody a discount. And my blood turned to ice water, and I was like, oh my gosh, this guy is indeed a serial killer. I mean, Shel Kavale might be the most... um most uh, prolific and most high-profile and most affluent and wealthiest Zodiac killer suspect out there, being heavily involved in the um, auto import-export business and the uh, premier um, um, importer of, what was it, Volkswagens on the West Coast, as well as his brother Knut Cavale was the guy who brought the Volkswagen bug to the West Coast. So he was a giant in the automotive field. Let's stay to something general, because I don't want him to state some of these specifics, but he's a very wealthy guy, and he's passionate about not only the car business, but also horse racing, and when he said that, though, never, ever give somebody a discount, I was like, what a cold-hearted and evil man. I mean, maybe indeed he was the Zodiac Killer, but as he elaborated in the uh, discussions that he's having with the author Kevin Nelson, he said that if you want to help people, you have to stay in business. And you're giving them the discount because you think you want to help them in the short term. But if you go out of business, you won't be able to help them anymore. So you need to stay in business. And how do you stay in business? By making a profit. And that's... um. That's why he became like a mega millionaire and I am not. Because like your absolute basic human instinct tells you, oh yeah, you want to give people a discount because just that, you want to help them, you want to be nice, you want to be generous. He saw the big picture at the long-term goal in the end game. So maybe not on that alone that um, he is an evil person just for saying never ever give somebody a discount. But the next point is that Shilkavale did so many things so many accomplishments. It's not only the auto business. It's not only his passion for being a speed junkie, that need for speed that I always talk about. They share new things about him all the time that I'm finding in this book, Lunches with Mr. Q. One example would be he was one of the first people to ever hire a female jockey to compete with one of his racehorses. He owned multiple racehorses. And he was also a big supporter of women's tennis, organizing tennis tournaments with people such as Billie Jean King and Martina Navratilova. And the tennis tournaments that he helped organize, they don't elaborate on the details of what capacity, but the tennis tournaments which he helped organize went on to become the women's pro tour that we now have today. This guy, Shel Cavale, just did so many things with his life and... um. I mean, I'm not gonna. I I do insist that discount thing, definitely, definitely gave me the chills. But when you actually hear his explanation, it does sound like someone who is just thinking in more of 
the a practical way that a businessman would. And yes, the book Lunches with Mr. Q is definitely trying to show the lessons that we can learn from Shell about the business world as opposed to anything else. And I would always like to give you guys the reminder that this show comes out to you three times a week talking about the Zodiac Killer on Zodiac Mondays. Wednesdays have recently been devoted to covering the Phantom Killer mystery from 1946, the story of the Texarkana Moonlight murders, and Friday isn't anything goes where any subject is fair game. But at some point, I'm really hoping to get back to the story of Jack the Ripper, because you guys were sending me some very um insightful and thought-provoking questions about the Ripper, and I would love to explore that particular mystery a little bit more, because some things with the Ripper case that I had not wanted to do were to go down the rabbit holes with particular suspects. But you guys have been asking me questions about the suspects, and also when I go over on websites like Whitechapel Jack or JackTheRipper.org, I read about the suspects, and I get very curious about this. Oh, wait, why is this happening? Why doesn't this add up? So I'm hoping that I'll be able to do some episodes on the Ripper in the future, as well as one of the cases that was recently covered on the Wednesday segment, the Long Island serial killer mystery, because I have to give a shout out to the Catch Lisk page. That's Catch the Long Island Serial Killer, the page that is available on Instagram, because they're posting a lot of Again, new material that could possibly be loosely connected to the Long Island serial killer mystery. And because these are unsolved cases, the work is never finished until we get definitive answers. So please stay tuned to, for the Wednesday episodes in the near future. And as I said, you can like, subscribe, follow along with all of these true crime discussions. And if you have an idea for the Anything Goes Friday segment, you can put your idea in the comments section down below. And even if it's something that isn't true crime related, I'm also doing the channel Astro Psych 400. Been working on the podcast for sleep over the last couple weeks because some people were saying that they use this program, Black Box Online Radio, as a way to fall asleep at night. So I thought, why not create something that is specifically designed to allow people to fall asleep? And you can get that on the channel, Astro Psych 400. As I said, special bonus episode coming out on Thursday. And anyone listening in the future can find it at... Um, well, why not right now if you're listening to this in the future? But to share some real Zodiac news, because this is the Zodiac Killer News Report, there is an update from Blaine Blaine on his upcoming book, Goldcatcher and the Zodiac Killer. And he released a new post on Facebook that is not only talking about that, but also about a different writer named Jared Kobach, who, um, why don't I just uh, read Blaine's words here? Jared Kobach has two Zodiac Killer-themed books published, I'm not going to examine them, but I have read Motor Spirit, an intellectual feast. If you have the antidote to its inherent poison, he ends up inventing someone called Blaine, a fiction based on fragments of what I wrote 50 years ago, because Motor Spirit is a scaffold pretending to be a study of the Zodiac case, but is really a set piece to announce that the novelist Kobeck has solved the Zodiac case, and he was a far-right man named Paul Doerr. He also writes a very interesting story about Gajkowski that he must be discredited because Kobeck needs to do so to make his Paul Doerr claim, which needs all the help it can get. That factoid book is called How to Find the Zodiac. Meanwhile, this is from Goldcatcher. The Zodiac wrote, I shot a man in a parked car with a thirty-eight in 1970. 
This is the Zodiac speaking, 1969-70. to Richard Gajkowski was at Northern State College at the theater in 1960s that played, where Gajkowski played the deputy sheriff in Stephen Hayes' Desperate Hours. Here from Act Two is a line Gajkowski would have said as the deputy. He was shot with a thirty-eight. Here from Act Three is a line of one of the people, the escaped convict victim, who says, This is Mr. Hilliard speaking. Further, one of the escaped convicts killed a prison guard, just like the Zodiac told Hartnell that he did. Goldcatcher in the Zodiac is now at page 240 of an expected 1,200 to 1,400 pages. And I wanted to read this post, um, firstly, to uh, talk about Jared Kobeck, the second to talk about Gajkowski, and the third because somebody had asked me about an update on Blaine Blaine's upcoming book, Goldcatcher and the Zodiac, and it seems like he is about one-fifth uh, of the way done. In the past, Blaine said that he was going to try and keep his book to a 1,000 pages. Now he says up to 1,400. But here's just another piece of literature that we will need to explore for Zodiac Killer Clues. One more time, the play from the Northern State College Theater they was Desperate Hours by Stephen Hayes. I'm definitely going to have to look more into that and try to find out if there are um, these clues that are found in Act 2 and Act 3. But right now I would like to go over to your shout-outs for buymeacoffee.com, and I would like to give a big thank you to our supporter for this week, Floyd Black 53 who says that your shows are really thought-provoking. Now I'll be pondering all day. Thank you for all the great content. Hey, much appreciated, Floyd Black 53 and thank you for your continued and excellent support. Anybody who makes a contribution to help support the show will get a shout-out on Zodiac Mondays. And I have to give some more credit to Classic Chevy Cat, who asked me about a different true crime case. This is not Zodiac-related, but just something that I felt wouldn't be enough for a full episode, but I definitely wanted to respond to. And that is the story of the Mad Gasser of Mattoon. I first learned about the Mad Gasser back in 2014, and I used to be a school teacher, and I even told my students about this case of somebody who would spray in this suspicious smelling gas, and they got a real kick out of it. But it's one of the more bizarre true crime cases because it's just that. You're dealing with a gasser as opposed to a killer, and... I also ended up doing one black box recording about the Mad Gasser back in 2019, one of the old-fashioned black box recordings where there is literally just a black box on the screen, and I've always wanted to get back to this particular mystery. But to help us out, I'm going to go over to an article that was written by Cinda Klickna in the Illinois Times, just citing the source, and it says... For several weeks in 1944, during the month of September, people in the town of Mattoon, Illinois, showed symptoms of exposure to a poisonous gas, nausea, vomiting, weakness, leading to near paralysis and lightheadedness, and even spitting up blood. All of the victims reported a sweet, cheap perfume odor permeating their homes prior to the onset of the sickness. Scott Maruna, a high school chemistry and physics teacher in Jacksonville, explains this in the book, The Mad Gasser of Mattoon, Dispelling the Hysteria. And to talk about this very, very quickly from the beginning, there are several possibilities about what this could be. This is still an unsolved case, right? 
But one of the examples is mass hysteria, that some people think that this person is spraying in this odd-smelling gas into people's homes. But it, it is, this is a real theory that they have. They think there was no gasser at all, that people are just like... <laughs> Oh, well, what's that I smell? Oh, no, it's the mad gasser of Mattoon. He has struck our home. That is all just invented in their mind, and they're actually smelling, well, something that is not so threatening. This case has long been cited in college psychology classes as an example of mass hysteria occurring during World War II. When so many men were off fighting and so many women were left home alone, the gassings have been explained as paranoia, panic, and delirium. But Maruna dispels this idea, giving credence to many who came forward to report a smell coming from their windows at night, and in some cases, seeing a shadowy figure running into the darkness. Within 48 hours, four homes had been hit, and the newspaper headline blared, Anesthetic Prowler on the Loose. But you may have noticed from the initial description that one thing they do say about the gas that was used is it didn't smell extremely foul. It was just something that smelled sweet. And I always thought that that was so bizarre. Even in this article from the Illinois Times, they talk about how the gasser was um, using something that smelled almost like perfume. And... Um, Maruno's 100-page book presents the facts surrounding the cases, the police investigations, and similar events in the United States. He then looks at the example of as, looks at the example of mass hysteria. When police led, when people were led to believe the reports that were mistaken, suddenly calls the station to drop. Possibly, Maruno suggests from sheer embarrassment and because the police chief threatened to arrest anyone else who reported a gassing without substantial evidence, or a medical explanation. This alone, Maruna says, deterred people from admitting that they had been gassed. Now, the more interesting theory, and to be honest, one that I think could actually be somewhat more credible. In the end, Maruna presents his solution. He dismisses the 60-year-old claim of mass hysteria and points to a real person who may have been the culprit. Living in Mattoon was a town genius who could be found in his family's grocery store, his name was Farley Llewellyn. He drank too much and kept a secret laboratory and experimented with various chemicals. Once an explosion from his lab rocked the neighborhood, Maruna says Farley, the obvious chemical genius behind the gas, his synthesis was the real gasser. In a, bit f in a fit brought by on his own mental instability and years of pent-up rage against the town that would not and could not accept him, Farley tinkered and toyed with various organic solvents in an attempt to create a suitable weapon. Maruna even goes as far to say that he can identify Farley's chemical as tetrachlorothane, a chemical with all the properties to induce the symptoms reported in the gassing. The Mad Gasser of Mattoon is an interesting and easy read. So um, I definitely would like to read that book in its entirety. But uh, to share some things that I read about Farley Llewellyn in the past is that he was reported to have been a closeted homosexual, and one theory is that, okay, so he starts doing it because he is, again, a gay man living in the 1940s, and that is the reason why he feels rejected from town, because he can't truly live his life and express himself the way that people in conventional heterosexual relationships could. So he develops this brewing plan of revenge, and then what he does is he goes on to try and 
go on the gas attacks, but he didn't do all of them because there were some odd reports about how people were saying that the gasser looked a little bit different in some of the witness descriptions, and one person even went as far as to say that it looked like a woman was dressed in men's clothing, and from what I remember in the past, Farley had at least two sisters, and I think that some of the gas attacks may have been committed by his sisters because they were trying to confuse the authorities, and they were trying to... Um, give various witness descriptions so they would see somebody that didn't look exactly like Farley and then it could never truly be traced back to him. But those are all um, theories and forms of speculation. And I also want to point out that even the Wikipedia page addresses a third possibility. One is mass hysteria, meaning that there really isn't any gas or toxic thing at all. People are just smelling something and it's almost like not the placebo effect, what's that called? The nocebo effect when someone thinks, well, that's when someone has been um, diagnosed with something that they don't have and they actually develop the symptoms. No, it's not even that. It's just um, mass hysteria, I think is the appropriate term. It's all in their mind that these symptoms are brought about because they think that they have been gassed when in reality there's just any type of odor that comes to their nostrils. So it's very similar to the nocebo effect. But there's even a third possibility that it's the toxic waste or pollution. And I remembered this one very clearly, so I wanted to read it off. On September 12th, the chief of police told a press conference that odors and symptoms reported may have been the result of pollutants or toxic waste released by nearby industrial plants and speculated that carbon tetrachloride or trichlorothylene, I'm not a chemist, sorry, both of which have a sweet odor can induce symptoms that are similar to those reported by the gasser victims and may have been the substance released. In response to Cole's statement, Atlas Imperial, the primary company implicated in this affair, released their own statement saying that their facility had only five gallons of tetrachloride in stock, which was contained in a firefighting equip which was contained in firefighting equipment. Atlas Imperial officials also deny that any quantities of trichloroethylene, an industrial solvent used by Atlas, could be responsible for the sickness in the town, reasoning that it would have taken a significant quantity of the chemical to sicken the townspeople, and that factory workers would have experienced similar symptoms long before anybody outside of the factory was effective. At the time of the gassing, the Atlas plant had been certified by the State Department of Health. Now, my honest take on the subject is, to give my stance, I actually think Farley Llewellyn is a very credible suspect. Maybe we don't have 100% proof, but I definitely think that he might actually be the culprit. And that's how I responded to Classic Chevy Cat in the comments section, asking about what do I think about this. Most of the time, I reject the prime suspects. For example, in the Zodiac Killer mystery, Arthur Lee Allen, I always thought from the beginning, I had my doubts, I had my uh, very negative suspicions and my criticisms, and I still stand by those to this day, not believing that Arthur Lee Allen was the Zodiac Killer. Another example, in the Texarkana Moonlight Murders, I don't think that Yule Swinney, the prime suspect, was the Phantom Killer. And a lot of these mainstream suspects are people whom I tend to not agree with the theory that they were the actual assailant. But with the Mad Gasser of Mattoon, out of these three explanations, I think that Farley Llewellyn might have actually been the gasser. And even if we can't prove it 100%, and it's unsolved, I don't actually know. 
but it does, um, based on everything that I shared with you thus far, the idea that he was somebody who worked with chemicals kind of on his own, he had one of his own little laboratories in the shed, someone who is living with resentment, if it is true that he was a closeted homosexual, and the story of how his sisters might have participated in at least one of the gas attacks to give conflicting witness reports or just to uh, maybe give him an alibi. I mean, all of that seems to make sense to me in a, in a single narrative. But what do you think? You can share anything that you would like about the Mad Gasser of Mattoon, and perhaps I will talk about this one in a larger, full, extended episode, and... um. You can also uh, talk about any of the other true crime cases that you would like, and maybe they'll even be mentioned at the end of one of these Zodiac Killer news reports. I don't mind sticking around to chat for a while. Last week, I was talking about the Midnight Assassin of Austin, Texas, a case that I mentioned because Sobek Lord introduced me to it and sent me a link to the episode of Most Notorious, talking about a very brutal serial killer mystery the Midnight Assassin of Austin, Texas, and one of the earlier ones that took place in like 1885. So I'm always willing to um, read up on the stuff that you guys are sharing with me, and there are so many more sources to go through now. There's that stage play that Blaine Blaine was talking about, and I've even uh, just got my hands on a book that talks about a Zodiac killer clue that could be found from the state of North Dakota, not South Dakota, like where Richard Gajkowski was from, as well as um, possible Zodiac victim Donna Lass, but North Dakota. So there's a, a lot of reading to do, and I have to get through all of this, but I absolutely love this, and I love talking to you guys about different ideas and clues and mysteries, and just trying to find some truth in the world. So anybody can write the show at blackboxonlineradio at AOL.com. You can also get me on Facebook. My personal Facebook is in the description box. And there is always BlackboxNed88 over on Instagram, and I will see you there for the bonus podcast. Until next time.